Uh, good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Uh, some familiar faces in the crowd here. Um, I'm Ezra Cohen, a fellow at the Hudson Institute uh, and a uh, former acting Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations and Low Intensity Conflict. And I'm joined by two other uh, gentlemen today that have uh, had the same privilege. And um, I'll, I'll just uh, introduce them here. So first of all, um, former acting Secretary of Defense Chris Miller uh, was unanimously confirmed by the Senate as the Director of National Counterterrorism Center. He served as the Acting Secretary of Defense of the United States for the final months of the Trump administration. Prior to becoming a political appointee, Chris was an Army Green Beret, head of counterterrorism and transnational threats at the National Security Council, and a senior official for the U.S. Department of Defense's special operations and irregular warfare efforts. He is currently advisor to Highlander Partner LP, uh, Texas on defense matters, and acting chief revenue officer at uh, Design Aero Technologies, specializing in autonomy. Mark Mitchell uh, is a former senior executive uh, in DOD who served most recently as the Acting Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations and Low-Intensity Conflict, SOLIC. He is also a highly decorated uh, U.S. Infantry and Special Forces combat veteran who served 28 years on active duty. He participated in multiple combat tours in the first Gulf War, uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, and he's a recipient of the Distinguished Service Cross, our nation's second highest decoration for valor in combat. In addition to serving four tours in the 5th Special Forces Group, uh, Mark served in the Office of the Secretary of Defense and on the National Security Council's Director for Counterterrorism. So uh, again, welcome, gentlemen. Uh, really appreciate you being here. I was Thank just you. commenting that the, the last time the three of us were together, and actually Dave was there too, who's in the audience, was uh, <coughs> when uh, Section 922, uh, which established SOLIC as the Civilian Service Secretary for Special Operations went into effect, and we, we signed that at Fort Bragg. Um, so it's a privilege again. So I, I think we'll just jump right into it. There's a lot to talk about. Um, let, let's just start with the basics. Irregular warfare, what is it and why is it important? Mark, Thanks. you want to? Irregular warfare for me is the use of our military, economic, diplomatic power, short of large-scale armed conflict. And for our Department of Defense, we, do, we tend to focus on force on force, state against state, and there's a whole spectrum of activities outside of that direct conflict that are going on where we're in competition with our our enemies and our adversaries, competition for resources, influence, and um, partnership around the world. And that is, in, in simple terms, I think, what we're talking about when we talk about regular warfare. You still got it, man. Uh, Ezra, thanks for hosting this. We've been trying to do this for, oh, about two years. Finally landed on today's date where we were all together. So thank you all for coming today. We noted that uh, we wish we were good enough planners that this, uh, you know, the National Defense Industrial Association is having their special ops low intensity conflict uh, seminar today. Uh, we would like to think we were good enough planners that we were, this is like the contra uh, version of that. We were not invited to that, obviously, because we're seen as uh, heretics and ne'er do wells. 
And uh, I think irregular warfare really kind of sums that up with our fervent belief that the vast majority of the time uh, the United States military is involved in non-conventional warfare. You know, I love Dave Maxwell's here. You, you could give us the numbers, like the number of in unconventional slash irregular non-conventional wars. I mean, that's what we do. That's what the United States military spends like 98% of its time doing. I break it down super easy because I was, a lot of you were involved in defining irregular warfare back in the uh, late 90s in the aughts, where we went through these just how many angels stand can be on the head of a pin controversies. Dave, you were there for this. Uh, and really, at the end of the day, I had to dumb it down to my level, which was uh, conventional warfare is all about uh, defeating the standing armed forces of a foreign power, uh, which really kind of the apotheosis, is that a word? Did I say it right? Did I say it right? Man, you should never use words because this is going to be a meme now where I use the word incorrectly, is uh, capturing your enemy's capital, right? That's really it. Regular warfare, and this, this is loaded because of uh, the Vietnam War with hearts and minds, but really what we're talking about is the, the center of gravity is the local population and winning their loyalty to the government that you are supporting or the effort that you're supporting. So that's kind of how I always end up keeping it simple. Right. So um, for the past 20 years, obviously, SOCOM has been focused on something very different. Really, the entire department has been focused on something different, and that's counterterrorism. So, so I, I would say I think there that's very that's true in that we were responding to the attacks of nine eleven, and there was a large portion of what we did that seemed to be directly counterterrorism. Um, but I also think when you look across what the special operations community was doing on a daily basis, in in these countries working, you know, through our partner forces. Um, to enable them, there was this very big portion of irregular warfare beyond CT. But you know, the first thing that comes to mind when you say U.S. Special Operations Command, people think of the Bin Laden raid and counterterrorism, and you know the uh, you know warheads on foreheads, rapid targeting, rapid targeting, um, and there is a, a big focus on that. But there's a lot more beyond it. So how do we? So now that we're not fighting al-Qaeda as much, we're not fighting the Taliban as much, uh, China, Russia, Iran, how do we take those uh, lessons and tactics that we perfected in the CT war and how do we pull those across to this new conflict? Well, I, first of all, I think everybody, you know, we all recognize too that the, the CT fight has not gone away. We've seen that with Hamas. Um, and the attacks in Israel. Our role, uh, obviously, is very indirect there, but it shows that the threat is still out there. The, the key portions are our intelligence fusion, our understanding of the local populace, our ability to develop uh, partnerships and enable our partners, I think, are all key aspects of our CT experience that we can pull over into the irregular warfare space, the what broader you, space. What do you think will be the biggest, like when we, we get some historical distance from the global war on terror, our war against al-Qaeda, 
uh, what do you think the major lessons learned? Like, it'll be four. I think one of them will be, you kind of alluded to it, is the interagency coordination. I think that was, you know, the cross-functional teams, those types of things, which I think that will hold up. You know, they call them, uh, what do they call them, joint gyatives and all and whatnot, joint interagency task forces. Uh, I don't know the status right now of a lot of those efforts. I imagine they probably declined a little bit. Uh, they probably exist in some places, but I was thinking that's going to be a major one, which I think is really the essence of regular warfare, is bringing all tools and capabilities to bear in a coherent fashion. That, that I think that's going to be one of the biggest lessons learned. We could talk about uh, the uh, correlation and the integration of uh, intelligence into the operations cycle. I think that would have happened regardless. That's just the nature of where technology is going. That's, but I think that that to me was kind of the biggest thing. You were part of those things yeah. too. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think um, you know, from my perspective, it's it, where we're still challenged is pulling in um, really even the non-Department of Defense uh, elements into the fight and leveraging their capabilities uh, to you know, undermine, to dissuade the enemy. I think that we're, we're still very challenged there. Uh, it, it's, you know, what, what I see is, and, and I think, you know, maybe I'll ask for your opinion on Ukraine and what we've seen going on in Ukraine. Um, it, it's very easy to uh, target um, these kind of one-off uh, terrorist targets. Uh, that, that, that was very easy to do. You know, we would, we would sanction them. That was one thing we would do. We would, you know, have kinetic options. Afterwards, we would obviously message uh, the way we did that uh, after any potential strike or any action we took. But when we're talking about combating China or Russia, potentially, um, it, the complexity is much greater. There's many more targets. And I, and I think that Pulling in all the elements of the interagency has been a challenge. I, but you see, uh, you know, I'll just go there. I might as well be provocative. Why not? Uh, you know, there's been talk over the years about making the United States Special Operations Command the Irregular Warfare Command. And it probably wasn't time uh, based on the development of the command. But right now, what I'm seeing is this uh, almost knee jerk reaction that everything must be connected to great power competition, pivot to Asia. You know, it's necessary in some ways, but that's really perfect skill set for the vast majority of the United States military. The Navy, the Air Force, everybody loves that. It's a targeting issue, right? I, I just advance it. I think it's time to rethink how we're arranged with our combat commands and the mission sets. And I think right now there's an opportunity for the United States Special Operations Command to take the lead in a regular warfare. I think, here, here's my thing, Ezra. I think if uh, General Fenton went into the tank and uh, you know said, hey, you guys love you to death. Let's be honest, we kind of don't get along that well. We pretend we do, and it's nice, and it's cute. You guys focus on Indo-PACOM. We'll take the rest of the world, and we'll run an irregular warfare campaign where we use cyber. I thought General Braga's efforts with uh, with Space Command and mm -hmm. Cyber Command, I was like, that's kind of, I like where he's going with that. And I think if you went in there and said, you guys just focus on the first island chain, we're going to compete in all the other areas of the world, Africa, Latin America, where the Chinese are making inroads, right? I mean, they're really doing a nice job. You're not supposed to say that. Mm -hmm. But if you look at how they're doing it, special operations 
and the tools of irregular warfare are ideally suited to compete with them. And here's what you do. It's like, I don't want any more money, don't need any more force structure, just don't cut me, I'll take care of the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. I think the other GCCs and I think the services would be like, oh, thank goodness. So I really think there's an opportunity there that needs to be readdressed. And none of this is original thinking, Ezra. There is no original thinking in the special operations community. Many people in this audience and online have driven the, these conversations, but they seem to have kind of like diminished. Like I'm not seeing it in the press anymore. I'm not seeing it, and I don't know whether that's due to the fact that uh, we maybe have some, um, we don't have the advocacy we need in the civilian ranks or perhaps in the military ranks, but I don't see these conversations happening. And it seems very unimaginative, like, oh, we have to focus the, the Indo-PACOM. Maybe that's not the best place for special operations. Maybe that's a good place for the Air Force and the Navy and the Army to compete. I, I would add on to that, you know, I've said many times before for the, you know, for the Army at least, the you know, Taiwan Straits and the South China Sea have become the new Fulda Gap. You know, that's where we're gonna fight this def decisive force-on-force -force battle that's going to <clears throat> determine the future of the world. And at the same time, we've also seen, just as after previous conflicts, particularly involved any kind of irregular warfare, the Army and the, you know, the, the services wanna quickly go back to that force-on-force and focus on a very clearly defined uh, battlefield and you know enemy set, and so now they're they're doing that, and that's why these discussions have died down, because it, you know, and we all know that ASC Solak is not yeah. in the right position to influence these discussions within the Pentagon, and we've seen that with the budget cuts that are being applied to the special operations community. And again, it's the same pressures that we saw after the Vietnam War to, okay, you guys go, soft guys kind of do your own thing, but we're gonna, we're gonna focus on this. And I think Chris is right. There is a role, um, an important role for us in that interagency coordination, because remember, DOD doesn't have, uh, outside of a declared theater of armed conflict, we are not the lead federal agency in any of these efforts but we can contribute uh, a whole lot to them. So, so Mark, let me stick with that for a second. So <clears throat> you, you alluded to the fact that the configuration of leadership uh, in the department is not right, it's, it's, or it's not optimal to create this uh, you know, force to thrive in the um, uh, unconventional warfare and irregular warfare space. So ASD Solik, you know, first of all, t tell us a little bit more about that. What are the, what are the, what, what is 922? And actually, then, what are the functions of the Civilian Service Secretary? Sure. You know, the 922 was a uh, bipartisan legislation signed into law by President Obama that was intended to strengthen the office of ASD Solek in its civilian oversight of the Special Operations Enterprise, which is principally U.S. US Special Operations Command. And like, you know, SOCOM is both a combatant commander, a functional combatant commander, and a um, a service equivalent when it comes to the man, train, and equip functions for special operations. ASD Solik has similar roles in terms of an advisor to the secretary uh, on irregular warfare and policy, but is also supposed to function as a ser service secretary-like to oversee the functions of, of USOCOM. And those core functions that are inherent to all of the other service secretaries 
um, legislative affairs, budget, an inspector general, acquisition, uh, research and development, the legal counsel, control of information, those are by law in Title X, must be in the office of the service secretary. But when you look at who controls those functions within the soft enterprise, it's the uniform personnel in Tampa. And you know, there, uh, one of our, our former colleagues uh, recently wrote that ASD Solik is a, a, a wholly owned subsidiary of, uh, of US SOCOM now. Well, okay, so, so why is that a problem, Mark? So to tell, I mean, we, we know the answer, but for the audience, tell us why that's a problem from your perspective. Because for our nation is, uh, and our control of our military forces is predicated on that civilian control. To civilian leadership to set the long-term direction and uh, oversight of all of those functions. And these functions that I mentioned are inherently, they don't involve war fighting directly. They're inherently civilian-led, and particularly the relationship with Congress and ASD Solik. Because SOCOM grew so rapidly after 9-11 and was given so much authority, um, those functions have grown dramatically at US SOCOM, and at the same time had shrunk in ASD Solik. Um, ASC Solik was very focused on many operational tasks rather than the long-term strategic direction of the force. And so it, it, it's a problem because it violates one of our most fundamental and cherished constitutional uh, principles of civilian oversight of the military. Mark, I would argue, though, if I was the four-star commander, I would want exactly that setup where I had basically lapdogs in D.C. that are going to do your bidding. So I want to be clear, like, this isn't like criticism of U.S. SOCOM. They're doing exactly what they're optimized to do, which is, you know, take charge, win in charge. So, uh, but that's where, like, this legislation was so important. Right. So this so wasn't our idea. This was Congress recognized that, wow, the span of control and the, uh, the power of U.S. SOCOM is so much more than when, what did it start? Like before uh, 2001, Dave, what, what were we at? Like 25,000, 30,000, less than that? And now we're at, and then it went up to... I think we were at about 50,000, went up to 70, 70. And it was $2 billion, went to 18-ish, 17-ish. And so this wasn't like, this was our civilian overseers, elected officials, decided right. that there needed to be new mechanisms. Go, go, I, ahead, I, I go, just, go ahead, Mark. I, sorry, did I trigger you? I, yeah. no, sorry, I, I did. I, I have to share this vignette. I think that captures it uh, very succinctly. Uh, early on in my tenure as acting ASD Solik, I was leaving the Pentagon one evening. It was about 6.30, and I came out to the mall entrance where my car was parked, and there was a, a line of, of black <laughs> suburbans and a bunch of you know, individuals standing outside, some of whom I recognized. And as I started to walk up, a couple of uh, burly gentlemen, the, probably the PSD for the SOCOM commander, interdicted me and prevented me from going closer. And it wasn't until one of the civilian staff officers said, oh, it's okay, he's, he's with ASD Solik, that I was allowed to um, approach the SOCOM commander's convoy of suburbans. And he was gonna go, and drive off, and he's got his personal chef, and I'm going to get my <laughs> Nissan Murano, and I'm going to drive home. And it, there is a huge imbalance between 
the you know the civilian leadership and the the SOCOM commander. So you wanted like so, a motorcade like that? Is that what you're saying? I, I don't want the motorcade. I wanted the jet, the personal jet that they used. <laughs> so, 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 so let me let me. Um, unfortunately, that stuff matters in Washington. It shouldn't. But unfortunately, to people that you know um, on the Hill, I think that that matters. It's unfortunate. But but let me. I just want to, Chris. We tried to write this ship um, uh, in um, uh, November of uh, 20. Uh, yeah, those were some. Those were some uh, interesting days. So, so when you, you you signed the you signed the nine two two implementation memo in front of uh, next to Bronze Bruce um, down at uh, Usasak. Um, there were uh, there was no military in the crowd for that. Um, we, I did notice that. Yeah. What 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 happened uh, from that period? How do you grade the progress? Where are we now? Uh, and where have we kind of gone off track? I'll answer that, and then I'm going to back up because the real you were in those meetings uh, that decided where we would go with this 922 implementation. Uh, where we are right now, though, I was <coughs> gobsmacked. I thought everything would be rolled back when we uh, the administration flipped because that was kind of the practice, and this is not a criticism of the Biden administration, it's just kind of how administrations change and they roll back all the executive orders and everything the last crew did because they were all wrong, and heaven forbid we need to write this, you know, correct this horrible error. I was shocked when I saw the line of block chart just the other day that uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations Low Intensity Conflict still has a dotted line directly into the Secretary of Defense, which was the goal all along, was to elevate, you know, the service secretary-like functions and have them pulled out from underneath like eight layers, additional layers, and get it directly reporting in. So I was kind of shocked by that. Uh, but I brought up earlier, you're not seeing much vision, at least publicly, like where we're going. And let's, hey, let's just call it out. Defeat in Afghanistan was... Uh, heartbreaking for all, everybody. <clears throat> well, I should say everybody for most of us. The fact that uh, U.S. special operators were not used in Ukraine early on uh, really kind of highlighted talks cheap. It's your actions. Seeing those two things happen showed me that probably the uh, voice and the power of ASD Solik and Special Operations Command has diminished substantially. So I'm not in the b business anymore, but just as you see the outcomes, you, it, it seems clear that although the legislation stands, it's been kind of gutted would be my uh, kind of assessment from the outside. I want to go back further, though, because when that, this will make some news here. Uh, when we decided so, you know, we, we were all in the business, and when we were younger, Mark and I worked together, oh my gosh, fifth group, way, way back when, and we always would complain about our bosses and like, well, we're in charge, by God, we're going to fix this. Then all of a sudden, we're in charge, right? And I remember looking in the mirror that before the big meeting uh, with all of the military and civilian hierarchy, you were there in that, off, that conference right. room right across from the SecDef's office, I remember looking in the mirror that morning going, this is going to be a tough one. We're going to get some scar, we're going to have some more scar tissue after this one. And I was like, it would be easier if we just cave. Because <laughs> 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 there's a lot going on in the world. And then I just remembered, man, I was like, those people that we had the incredible honor of leading and a privilege of leading, commanding, 
uh, expect more from us. So we went in there, but here's the thing. I got a call from an extremely high-ranking uh, congressman prior to that. So to be clear, this 922 was, when was it passed? It was uh, in the last, 2015, I think. Uh, 15, uh, It was the last year of the Obama administration. Four, and yeah. We had started these tiger teams and working groups to make sure that everything was properly integrated. I think we did more work probably than Eisenhower's staff did for the invasion of D-Day. <laughs> now, it got off to a tr tough start because a lot of us were in these working groups, initial working groups. It was rough. But I'll tell you what, after four years, I got to tell you, the quality of the people in ASD Solic, the civil servants that just serve, and they're given a mission, and they were given a mission like Execute 922, and they put together these tiger teams and these working groups. And four years of churning, they had the right answer. Well, and, and actually, let me inter yeah, go interrupt. Yeah, go ahead, please. It, it wasn't just the, the civil servants, and I think that this kind of speaks to uh, how bad the civil-military relationships are. There were also active duty senior military officers that were in ASD Solic, in the Secretary for Special Operations, executing 922, which is the law, who face consequences to their career yeah. for doing that. So I just, I just want to, it's important we uh, recognize them too, but sorry. Thank, sorry to, no, that's a good point. Thank you for bringing that up. And they're just doing, they're doing the nation's bidding. Here's the thing. So the word goes out. Uh, Joe Tona needs a shout out too on this because he got thrust into this. I don't think he was even acting. He was like perform. He was uh, performing the duties of blah blah blah. He gets thrust into this position, and we thought that the 922 implementation would require a memo or a directive from the Secretary of Defense. But thank goodness we've got great lawyers at the Pentagon and in Solik, and they're like, no, the person that's the Solik can direct the SOCOM commander, the four-star commander, to implement this. And so Joe Tonin on his own sends that thing down, and, um, and it causes quite a kerfluffle. I get a call from a Congress, extremely high-ranking congressman, who goes, Secretary Miller. I say, yes. Won't tell who it is. Congressman. I'm, I'm intrigued by this 922. You're going to have the uh, Special Operations Command report directly to you. And I said, yes, sir. He goes, why? And I said, because it's the law. And he goes, oh. And then here's, I lack political sophistication. And I didn't realize. And he finally goes, the appearance of this is quite troubling based on where we are as a country right now. And I realized at that point he was indicating or indicating that he thought this was part of some grand design to have a coup force in existence. Uh, and, and I was absolutely flabbergasted. I was like, I spent my career dedicated to the Constitution. We would never do anything like that. I said, Congressman. We have spent four years dotting the I's, crossing the T's. We have done this with enormous collaboration and transparency. This is the law. Are you saying we should disregard the law? And then we got all the backpedaling. That's not what I'm saying. So we did it. And there were 14 recommendations. Weren't there 14? There were 14. And yeah. you guys were so angry with me at that meeting because I knew we were going to have to compromise somewhere. You got allowed SOCOM to save some face. We only 
we only did 13, and we, I, yeah. I, I, and it was I, budget authority. I, I will say that the budget authority. You were so angry. Well, I, I, I think, well, I think, and I, and I think Mark um, highlighted this in the beginning. Um, you know, the only way to uh, reform SOCOM, to make it a uh, more effective fighting force uh, against the upcoming threats. And I, and I think also it's really the way any service secretary is able to make those types of turns in an organization is really through the budget control. And so that's why I think that that's a, that's a key pivot point. Um, I just, dude, I just had to go like well, why, we well, three quarters of the pie. Well, I, think, why, so I, <laughs> I was tired. So I think the, que I think the question is, and, and Mark, why did SOCOM, why were they so hung up on something that was so clearly within the civilian domain? Because it represents power and control. And that's fundamentally, I mean, everybody in this town, you know, in, in government, one way or another, wants wants a budget, and they want to be able to say where that budget is going, how it's going to be spent. And right now, all of that power within SOCOM really rests. I mean, as a, as acting ASD, I would get the budget documents, you know, a couple hours before they were due, you know, up to Congress. So there was no real effective oversight. We didn't have the staff, and even to this day. Um, I don't think there's anybody in ASD Solik that has the uh, transactional level access to be able to tell you where exactly the money is going and how it's being spent. And to me, that's really troubling um, because ASD Solik is supposed to be responsible for that. And they, you know, SOCOM's got a budget of about $14 billion, and we should be able, the ASD Solik should be able to say, I want to see exactly where the, this money is going, down to the transactional level detail, and have the staff to be able to do that. I wanted to touch back real sure, briefly, though, on something. It, the, Chris, we've been talking about it, 922. And that's the part, that's the name of the legislation. The, the, the it, was, of it was the section of the legislation. But what 922 represents in a, in a, from a different perspective is just the latest ability to incrementally change and make marginal changes in um, the relationship between SOCOM and, and the ASD. And so we've got like 20 years of all kind you know, of each year, you know, new, new authorities being given to SOCOM um, and, and to the commander. And I've said the, the only way that we're going to write this is, is no more incremental changes. I think Congress needs to go back and fundamentally rewrite the, all, the entire sections of legislation that relate to the special operations community. And, and that may open a, you know, a bit of a Pandora's box for other changes sure. that, that people may recommend. But I think it, we can't, you're trying to tinker around the edges and, and leave it up to the discretion of really the SOCOM commander and his ability to influence the secretary. And as an aside, we need to quit um, putting retired general officers in as Secretary of Defense. I don't care which. You're just yeah. covering everything. So, which administration, so, so but anyway. So we'll, we'll come back to I'm going to go back to you. Right. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> that beautiful, clear, crisp day at Fort Bragg when this was implemented, you said this is the step to a separate service. And you, I mean, it was as if you touched the third rail on that one. Because do you remember the, yeah. like, all the, 
retired generals. And yeah. Everybody's like, this guy's out of control. Put him back in his box. Yeah. Do you well, remember yeah, that? I, I do remember <laughs> that. But it also was, a, I think, a hint to me that we were heading in the right direction. Um, the, you know, <clears throat> at the end of the day, I think uh, the progress and actions speak for themselves. And um, unfortunately, I don't think that there has been enough change uh, to, to properly prepare the country for the <clears throat> conflict that we're going to have in the Pacific against our greatest adversary. Um, and I, I do think that having a civilian ser service secretary will help with that. But one thing I just want to go back to quickly on the budget. So recently, SOCOM, it's very public, took some significant budget cuts. And it looks like many of the cuts are going to go to the psychological operations forces, which is really what you need in a pre-conflict stage if you're very serious about uh, um, dissuading our adversary. So what, what's going on there? I mean, I, I mean to me, it's, this is almost the, the proof, right? You need a civilian service secretary in the building because that decision was cl is clearly an example of SOCOM getting outmaneuvered in the Pentagon. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a fair assessment. They, the Army, in particular, uh, said, "Hey, we, you know, we've got to make up some shortfalls," and a, a, as we've seen time and time again, SOCOM was the, um, you know, the USASOC became the bill payer for that. And USASOC, the U.S. Army Special Operations Command, the uh, the Army Component Command that controls all of Army Special Operations Forces, and they became the bill payer. And again, I think it had ASD Solik um, had more direct uh, influence with the secretary, it might be a different outcome. And we don't know what that influence was. We don't know what those conversations were. We know the outcome. We know it was. It appears to have been handled enormously ham-handedly. I'll be. I'll be a heretic here and say. We can't fill all our uh, formations to 100% now. We grew the force dramatically for the war on terror quite appropriately. Uh, those wars are over to large extent now. And my sense was there's an ability to actually, and I love, believe me, I love nothing more than to argue with the services about how they're not supporting special operations. But I really think if there was a more nuanced approach, there was probably an opportunity there to do a drawdown or to turn in force structure uh, that we decided on as opposed to giving up psychological operations, which, gosh darn, we spent so much time and so much effort to build out those capabilities that are, I'd argue, remember, special forces came from PSYOPs. Let's be honest. It started that way. I know we're not supposed to say that out loud, for heaven's sakes. I know. And so here we are now giving up probably one of the more important tools for a regular warfare campaign. I just think we could have done it differently. I think we could have been more sophisticated in our approach and probably had the ability to do some deal making. Well, and, and, that, and that's really, though, where, uh, you know, I think SOCOM thinks that because they have a three star in the building uh, who you know, doesn't report to the ASD Solik effectively, but Correct. is doing his own thing. I think SOCOM, it, it almost shows the hubris of SOCOM, that they, th that, <clears throat> that they think that a three-star in the Pentagon is going to be able to go up against the Secretary of the mm -hmm. Navy, the Secretary of the Army, and the Secretary of the Air Force. 
It's, it just shows incredible hubris. Mark, you wanted to? No, I think it's uh, the, uh, the whole, SOCOM is the only command that I know that has a vice commander in the Pentagon, a three-star office there in the Pentagon. Um, and the original, the original justification was that the, the SOCOM deputy commander was spending so much time going back and forth between Tampa and Washington, D.C., and particularly because there were so many budget-related issues that they created it. But again, I want to, the budget should be controlled by ASD Solik. And if, you're, if SOCOM's going to keep a vice in there, I've said before, it should become the Solik mill dep and, and directly answer to ASD Solik. And SOCOM's legislative affairs function should be directly under the control of ASD Solik. So I, I want to... I just want to touch on quickly, we, we talked a little bit about, um, and, and I think this will grow into a larger conversation here, but we talked a little bit about the relationship and the fusion of intel operations with uh, special operations. Um, so all of us, all three of us fought many, many battles about, is it intelligence or is it operations? And frankly, a lot of things, a lot of good operations, regardless of the category, were frustrated and did not take place because of that debate. So, you know, Mark, do you want to talk a little bit about what we kind of throw into the bucket of sensitive activities? Obviously, no specifics, but what what is your perspective on that on that tension between Intel ops and and, and special ops? Sure, and there are a lot. There are organizations within the special operations community that conduct military activities that lead to the production of great amount of information often. And I think, I don't know if a lot of people know, so the Department of Defense also shares Title 50 authorities and has the ability uh, to conduct operations under Title 50, which covers our, our, the intelligence activities of the United States, the portion of the US code. And there are special operations units that are involved in that and even Indirectly, our special operations forces around the globe produce uh, voluminous amounts of information that, uh, when refined into intelligence, is I think extraordinarily illuminating. First, you know, firsthand accounts, very close relationships, and I, I would like to see us uh, not get caught up in whether it's intel or operations, uh, but focus on you know the desired effects and um, make sure that our, the folks that are on the ground are best supported to and, do that. And I'll just also say as the intelligence guy on this, on this uh, panel, um, it, it's not just special operations producing intelligence, but intelligence is also getting, and intelligence tactics and techniques are getting special operations forces to, to the target as well. Right. Um, so, Chris, this isn't uh, this idea that intel and special operations need to work very closely together or maybe even work as one. That's not new. Um, it's been done before. There are other uh, organizations in the U.S. government that are doing that today. Um, any, 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 what's your perspective? I love the tension between the intel shop and the op shop. I really like that. I think it's healthy for America. But it also was built in after the church hearings and all the failures of intelligence and the, well, not, yeah, complete violation of American civil liberties in the 60s and 70s. 
uh, we're in a different era now. And, you know, those concerns about like, oh, you have American person's data shared in the same file as a doggone human report. You're in violation of, was it 1223 or whatever that is, Intel Oversight. You know, I think we're in a fundamentally different era right now. And we have the ability to better control data and see... I thought it was a valid concern back in the 70s, 80s, 90s when uh, we didn't have the ability to understand how all these different pools of data were coming together. It's, it's pretty easy now. I just come back to, you know, and this is anathema, I know, to the many in the community. I really, res- I got to tell you, I respect the fact that our military services are, and SOCOM was never supposed to be this way. Remember, SOCOM was supposed to be the adaptive, flexible ones, but it's become kind of high to bound and bureaucratic excuse me, bureaucratic now, that's the nature of the business. Uh, so, you know, you're supposed to have to, if you're going to disrupt, yeah, have a couple choices. I think one of them is do, reestablish something like the Office of Strategic Services that existed in World War II. It was kind of where all the oddballs and the, the crazy people that like, oh, I'm a physicist at Johns Hop or MIT primarily, and I want to serve my country, but I don't want to go through basic training. And there was a process they could be brought in, they could contribute. Uh, I think I think we really need to do that again and look at it. And all, Ezra, I got it. How would the law look? How would they get paid? Who would they answer to? We can work through that. I'm very confident we can work through that. So I think it's yeah. time for an Office of Strategic Services Part 2. Well, look, I, I, I mean, I'm, I think I'm uh, – actually, I think right after – when we, when we went into that room uh, after we signed the 922 implementation, and um, we could have heard a pin drop. We, we were all we were all toasting, and and we realized that you know many of our friends in uniform were only allowed to be in that room, uh, if you recall, uh, in private where there were no cameras, um, you know, lest they be seen publicly uh, supporting civilian uh, control of the military. Um, but but I said in there, I said in there, this is a step towards creating. The OSS, which is really what I think this country needs. And you triggered me on that one uh, because it was dramatic. We had been renounced by right. the military services, and that's all right. And that you brought up the point about uh, military uh, general officers being in senior civilian positions. <clears throat> I was so doggone naive, Mark, that I thought that we were doing a solid for the force and for our country, and then to be renounced by those that we had served for so many years, that was that, that one stunk. I'm over it now because the most important thing was that was the transition where I understood the role of civilian oversight in the Department of Defense. I was like, if those people are happy and high-fiving us and we're getting invited to their events, it probably means we're not doing our job. But, you know, that's not really a fun place to be. Let's be honest. It's not, you're like, wow, I committed my, like, so much of my career and, you know, family and all this, and then to, to see that was, it was, it was, it hurt, man. Right. But, yeah. but I walked away stronger in understanding how our, Department of Defense and how our government works, you right. know. So I became, I left stronger and more confident. But wow, that was, that was, that was pretty. That 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 was harsh, man. So, so coming back to the idea of, of of creating this new organization, you know, call it whatever you want, but but that essentially fuses ops and intel. Um, it seems like one advantage of that could be if it's formulated this way, if it if if that function goes to 
you know, what is now, and again, this is also, I think, going to be controversial with some, but if it goes to the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence, of course, the name would change and some of the structure would change there. One of the advantages that is that of that, too, is that now you actually have an undersecretary, not just an assistant secretary, uh, which, you know, it's more horsepower. It's more horsepower for SOF. Um, thoughts? I, so I, you know, we've gone through this idea about you know, elevating AST Solik to an undersecretary. There's been talk about merging. It, what it all comes down to is a recognition that the Pentagon bureaucracy is, is very much ossified and will not welcome, and, and the span of control. You know, you've got, uh, what is it, I think six effective undersecretaries. And just in the same way that we're, we're dealing with the question of services, you know, we had the Army, Navy, and the Air Force, and now I've got Space Force. And, um, and I think there's pressure to, you know, create a cyber force. And um, you, you have limitations. I'm not opposed to, you know, I think the, uh, there are huge synergies um, that could be achieved. It's, uh, but the devil's all in the details. And going back to Congress and writing the, you know, not just saying, okay, ASD Solik is under uh, USDI now. It has to be more of a fundamental yeah. rewrite. A new, a new, a new entity. With very clearly articulated um, responsibilities to kind of set that framework. Because otherwise, the, the, we just know that the Pentagon, after, you know, just like happened after Chris left office, it kind of went back to what it was, you know, the previous comfort zone. Yeah, there, there has to be, I mean, I think with the way the threat is developing, there has to be real quick, quick, but permanent change. Yeah. Um, I would say, on the, on the, you know, on the threat, and most, again, we, we have a tendency to think in terms of military, um, you know, we're talking about the Department of Defense here, but as I pointed out earlier, the Department of Defense is not the lead federal agency, and most of the, the, the threats that we face, some of the most compelling threats, are not direct military action, but in terms of theft of intellectual property, uh, gaining influence in, in other countries. And, and so we have to remember that we can contribute to that in many ways, but we're, we're not going to be the driving force behind it. Right. I, I think one thing uh, that DOD brings uh, that really that you can't match anywhere else, though, in the interagency is scale. And so if we are looking to create uh, um, to avoid conflict, frankly, to, 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 to steer clear of conflict um, in the Pacific, that will take a, a quite a large scale. Um, and, and I think that, you know, from my perspective, and obviously interested in what both of you think, but from my perspective, DOD um, is capable of doing that, at least in part. Um, Chris, I, I, Chris what, what do you see of the advantages of, of, of creating, um, since you, you, you broke the glass on this just right now, you, you were the first person to utter it. What are the advantages of creating a new OSS-type organization? I think there's just so many young people and old people, actually, to be perfectly honest with you, <laughs> that uh, want to serve, have capacity and capability. And I just come back to, I mean, we spend our lives, in our adult lives, professionally, in United States Special Operations Command. So we know 
we know where it is in its evolution. And right now, we need a blowout, disruptive organization that can think a little bit differently. And it's not a criticism, again, of U.S. SOCOM. It's just the nature of bureaucracy. But this SOCOM used it, to be that think different Yeah, it was, that's right. And now, I mean... You know what? what ha I mean, do you, do you think it's is it or things stagnant there such that uh, that, that we I, mean, I I'm not in the business, but I do try to pay attention, and I don't see like a a, a vision statement that says we will be the regular warfare command uh, of the United States, and we will do this, this, this. I'm sure there would be a counter argument by the great people down there that are trying to innovate, but let's, you talk to, you still talk to the young people that are down there and they're feeling really stifled. And so there has to be an outlet. And that's why I think the OSS, but you also brought up the requirement to merge ops and intel. That has to be very deliberately done. And I highlighted the mistakes we've made in the past and mistakes are happening right now. I don't know what they are, but you see them all the time. You're like, Oh, Staff Sergeant Jones thought it was a good idea to scrape social media to look for something. We love, we love the innovation of our young soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, space force guardians. Uh, however, I think if you bring that together in a more coherent organization, you can have the proper and necessary guardrails to make sure that uh, you know, civil liberties aren't. Well, and, and I think that that's a that's a strong pitch though for strong civilian oversight. And, yeah. and control. Yeah, um, I would say you know when we're in uniform, you guys say, "Well, amateurs talk tactics and professionals talk logistics." But once you get up into the beltway, you realize that amateurs talk strategy, professionals talk authorities, yeah. fiscal and legal authorities, and you know because without them, you're not getting anything done. No. And and I think that merging these. Yeah, uh, functions could produce uh, great effects, but it really has to be carefully uh, uh, monitored uh, with those authorities Correct. to avoid those. You know, these young specialists who are, who are trying to do the right thing don't know any better, and then you know somebody saying, "Hey, you're you're outside the bounds of the law here." So I want to take. We're going to go to questions in a second, but I, I want to I want to cover one topic that's you know come up a lot recently. So there's been a lot of people in the political sphere talking about um, using soft and special operations uh, techniques and tactics um, in the counter-drug fight. Um, obviously, uh, I think over 100,000 Americans have been killed this year. Um, in fact, Chris, that was the first time that we met at the Pentagon was on using um, special operations to counter um, what at the time was uh, 75 8,000 Americans being killed. It's now gone up. So what do you think? First time I ever went into the Oval Office uh, was for a counter-narcotics meeting. It was, I remember the day, it was the 13th of December, whatever year that was, 2019. And this, all the bigwigs were there. I was in the cheap skeets. I was working at the National Security Council. I, I literally just walked in. I don't know how I got in. I wasn't supposed to be there, but that's another story. <laughs> I was in charge of transnational threats. And so I said, that's counter-narcotics. That's good enough. So I got in there, and the president sat there, and he goes, he said, 71,000 Americans are dying every year from illicit narcotics coming in from south of the border. And I'd always been in, like, you know, the wall and all that. I always thought that was some other thing. 
it was really a part of that was to control and limit the flow of drugs into the United States. And he said, what are you guys doing about it? And Attorney General was there. Everybody's there. I'm in the chief seats. Uh, I got, well, I won't tell that story. And it really stuck with me. And he was very clear. He goes, what's the role of our national security if we can't protect Americans from illicit drugs coming in? And you know what, remember what we got in an argument was? Uh, Jayada South, Joint Interagency Task Force South, which is the interagency task force responsible for, uh, you know, the drug, the drug combating uh, illicit narcotics coming in from Latin America. Remember when we asked them what did they need that would create would offer a great increase in capability? They asked for some radar. Remember that? Right. Yep. It wasn't like one of these like radars on the ships up in Alaska that you see that cost like 80 gajillion dollars and stuff that can see basically to Saturn. It was just like one of these routine kind of Fort Hood, like go down in the motor pool to the <laughs> doggone, you know, get, get you a radar. And remember, Secretary Esper, let's be clear, fought that tooth and nail because he said, if we give up one radar to the counter narcotics fight, we'll have one less radar for uh, the pivot to Indo-PACOM. Do you remember that? I, I painfully remember it. I see um, uh, um, I see Matt Flynn here in the audience. I know he remembers that. I mean, of course, the 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 um, the, the the irony of that is you've got the, the sad irony is you, you've got seventy plus thousand Americans dying. We're at one hundred and eighteen. One hundred eighteen thousand right Americans dying every Last year now, and. All they wanted was one hundred thousand dollar radar to, uh, to to be able to pick up those loads. Because it was on the other side, remember? Yeah, yeah. Like, no, we got the yeah. eastern or the western. Yeah, like, I had them. Yeah, they want. Like, they we wear, need another yeah. one over there because, because our, the cartels just go where the ra- where we don't have a radar, and so we could if we only have one radar for one coast, they just go around it. It's. Um, I mean, it was well, it was it was honestly. I'll say it was one of the most discouraging um, moments that I ever had because. Unlike, you know, we're talking about authorities here. We're talking about all these things. But while we're sitting there and this is happening, there are people that are dying on the streets because of drugs coming in. And it's, 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 it's heartbreaking. And many of the people in this audience were part of really our special operations forces during the Renaissance phase after the when President Reagan kind of created the U.S., this kind of new era of special operations. First missions were what? Counter-narcotics. And I would argue with you that the lessons learned there and those teams that were built there tra- uh, transcended that time period. And those tactics, techniques, and procedures and those relationships built during that campaign directly attributed to our success in the counter-terrorism. Well, absolutely. Fight. When you look at the network targeting. Yep. Um, and, Started there. And, 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 and all of the things that go into that, I mean, there, there's no question. And I'll just say, before we go to the audience, the reason that in Solik, we were worried about counter drugs is because uh, uh, the counter drug, the DOD counter drug office and mission is part of, of Solik. Um, so uh, that's why we were all very focused on it. Okay, let's go to questions. Okay, uh, go ahead, Dave. So thank you. So you have to get the microphone. Dave, you have you to go. have that. Thank you for your uh, great remarks. I, I just got a couple comments and, and one question for both of you. Um, you know, everything you've talked about, we have not ever realized. Nun Cohen, the vision of Congress uh, to really have a 
Secretary of SOF, not an ASD, not Under Secretary mm -hmm. of Intelligence, a Secretary of SOF and a Chief of Special Operations. I think that's, you know, those terms can, could really be defining there. And, and so I think, you know, and I, as much as I want an OSS, I don't think we'll quite get there. Or maybe this would be an interim step. Uh, the other thing that Nunn Cohen wanted to give responsibility to one organization for low intensity conflict, which is today's irregular warfare. And, and so we have not realized that vision. So we got to think hard about that. And, and we really have to think about, uh, as you're talking about reorganization and doing that. But my question is, and this goes back to the 2018 Irregular Warfare Annex you guys worked on and everything, and the new NDS, which really emphasizes campaigning. And I think campaigning less than major uh, large-scale combat operations, campaigning in the irregular warfare or gray zone space. How do we, who is responsible for, and how do we develop irregular warfare proficient campaign headquarters? Where do they lie, and who, and who's responsible for developing them? If you were a king for a day, how would you do that? Okay, thanks. All right, Mark, you go ahead first. Oh, thank you that you made Mark go first. <laughs> I saw Dave you. Dave Maxwell. I let's let's be clear. Dave Maxwell has been a thought leader in this for every, while you were in service, but more importantly, since you left service, I think your contributions to this uh, this kind of conversation. And I want to, like, here's real quick. You know, we've had enough reps on this. So you, when you're younger, you don't really know what the right answer is. And you listen to all the old gray beards and, and like, okay, you're listening. But we are at a place in our lives based on our experience where we know what the right answer is. And that's what you, the right answer is we need to have an independent service secretary and we need to have a chief. And all, you are better with like the details. I'm just the big picture hand wave guy. But you know that's why I think SOCOM should just be designated as responsible for the regular warfare campaign campaigns of the United States military. That, and but the OSS piece, you're right, Dave. That's kind, maybe that's an interim step. But I don't understand any other way to like drive the bureaucracy to a a common vision, which really is this ultra, this, this uh, uber joint interagency task force is what we're really talking about to, to counter China in the peripheries and the secondary tertiary theaters. So I agree with everything Chris said. I was going to say the, you know, the, the, the wrong answer was probably be another, just another DOD headquarters. Um, it does have to be an interagency effort because again, we're talking about efforts outside of designated theaters of armed conflict that are going to involve diplomacy and economics and all of our aspect information, all of our aspects of national power. I do think, however, that our theater special operations commands, if properly structured, could be a and supported by the interagency, um, could be the locus of that campaign plan, and we could achieve it um, a great deal. The one, one of the challenges we face, though, is our, our current structure within the DOD has geographic combatant commands, and we have hard boundaries. We have Country X is in, in, in UCOM, Country Y is in CENTCOM, but the, our adversaries don't play according to those rules and they move freely across those boundaries. And I think 
I mean, the time has come for us to, you know, change, more fundamental re so relook. I think, I think, you know, I mean, the, the good thing, though, is not to go back to authorities, but it, it is very important, is that's the UCP, and the president can change that pretty easily. Yes. That, that's, yes. That's, that's, that's something that really can be done through executive action. I just want to, a few more questions. Um, who, who's, okay, Matt, I see, oh, we'll go Matt, and then we'll go up here. Question, I, uh, well, we're, we got one back here, and then we'll go to you next. I think, okay, well, I'll just say a few things. Well, I think that what, what Matt's getting at is that um, our, our partner forces, but also our partners, are very, very susceptible to the instability in our budget process, um, especially uh, Matt, who was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Counter-Narcotics, um, saw this. Uh, we had worked around the world to build up these really key relationships to, to counter drugs, but also, frankly, those relationships are then used to counter uh, other adversaries. Um, and uh, when, when we just pull the plug from them uh, overnight, like Secretary Esper did, uh, it takes a long time to build those back up. But I, I don't know, um, Chris, Mark? I, mean. I think Secretary Blinken and Secretary Austin are up on the Hill today uh, justifying the $108 billion, that's with a B, billion dollar supplemental. Do you think we could? have a bit of that, maybe do a, a beta version of an OSS type proof of concept? Could we maybe factor in that counter-narcotics is a threat to, uh, or narcotics, illicit narcotics are a national security uh, primary threat and get that established? And also, uh, it comes back to correct selection of civilian leadership that, I mean, that pot of money was available. You know as well as I do when that, those fights were going on. All the uh, budget folks just looked and what can we tap into quickly? They didn't tap in the F-35 or anything like that. They're like, oh yeah, which comes back to the theme of our meeting, like profoundly uh, powerful civilian leadership perhaps could have changed that um, outcome where counter-narcotics accounts were raided for other things. I think it's spot on. You, you know, you fight these battles inside the Pentagon uh, against the CAPE, the Center for Analysis and Program Evaluation, and you, you get a lot of bean counters without, I'm not trying to be dismissive of, but they're, they're looking at it strictly from an accounting perspective rather than a operational and a mission perspective. And we end up without the right advocates and with the, with the appropriate level of influence you end up being subject to those types of analyses. All right, I'll be right up here. Right up here. All right, George Nicholson. One of the questions you talked about was legislation. Dick Schultes was one of my oldest friends, and I was up here in Washington after he had left JSOC, and they were having the uh, uh, Goldwater Nichols hearing. Remember every posture statement, everybody's asked, does something need to be changed? No, everything's fine. Schultes had been selected for his third star. He turned down his third star because he said, I can't testify what needs to be done. The secretary, I mean, the chief of staff of the Army came up here. They had the briefings. Admiral Crown, everything's fine with soft. Don't need to change all the service chiefs right down the line. Schultes went in unemotionally, 
testified, and the nun turned the corner and said, Bill, we got a problem. He says, our original intent was to recommend the DOD that they have a uh, uh, military funding program, that they have a four-star headquarters. Clearly, that's not going to work. And that's where the Nunn-Cohen amendment come, came from. And both uh, Sam Nunn, who's a friend of mine, and Bill Cohen have said there would not be a SOCOM today if it had not been. So the question is, uh, do we need to go ahead and have a fundamental change, whether it's the Key West Agreement or whether it's uh, Go Order Nichols to, to do that? You talked about, you know, control of what the OSS did. Well, remember that after the OSS was disbanded, that was the, nemes the nexus for creating the, C the, the CIA. So do we actually have pieces of organizations out there, what the CIA is doing, what DEA is doing, so rather than establishing another, and then you sort of alluded to, uh, and people don't understand, when we did uh, Neptune Spear with Bill McRaven, that was not done under Title 10. That was done under Title 50. And that's the reason uh, uh, the CIA director, who later became the, uh, the uh, uh, Secretary of Defense, did that operation. So I would, would step back from saying we need to have another OSS. Looking at what's in place right now, do you work out an arrangement between those, those organizations? Now, of, co of course, uh, before I turn it over, I mean, the, uh, the decision to conduct that operation under CIA Title 50 was a choice, not a, not a requirement. Uh, it didn't have to be that way. Uh, DOD could have conducted that operation under Title 50. But anyway, um, uh, Mark, Chris, any comments on? There were a few things in there, so I, pick a, what you want to there's respond to. There's a lot to. there, and I and I've I've made similar comments before. You know, the 1947 Key West Agreement and our the revisions made after World War II have served our nation well for you know 75, 80 years. The question is, though, is is it the right structure going forward? And, and, you know, and then you get into the whole idea of the, the different um, departments and agencies and their bureaucratic self-preservation imperatives. It's gonna take not only a, a extraordinary leadership in Congress, uh, but presidential leadership in the executive branch to make any changes like that. But I do think it's, it's worthwhile uh, asking and and looking at it is, is the structure that has served us well through the Cold War, is it the right structure moving forward? So many things have changed in this world that um, I think it bears uh, close examination and how can we do it better? But it, it, ta and that, it takes tremendous amount of leadership to fight the bureaucratic inertia that seems to envelop this town. I just love your you know, nothing, none of this is new, and you lived through that, and just those giants. You talk about Schultes, you talk about Cohen, Nunn, Goldwater, like they understood national security, and I'm not, I'm hopeful that someone comes out of the mist up on the hill, because that was all, you know, it was a bunch of colonels that were like going nowhere that said, I'm going to sacrifice my career to do the right thing. And then you had the giants up there that recognized it was necessary for our nation's security that we transform how we do things in the Department of Defense. It was magical. But we, you know, every 30, 40 years, we reshuffle things. It's kind of time. Like, these are the conversations that need to get started. But more importantly, we need somebody really aggressive that understands, like, it's kind of, ex I think it's existential, to tell you the truth. Like, if we get this wrong, like, this is the one, you know, we used to always, like, got to fight the night, remember, Dave, and we're out in Korea, all that, you know 
Fehrenbach and all that. Now we're kind of there. Like we have to, if we get this wrong, it's going to be really, really hard to recover. But I just don't see the giants like you were referring to. All right, go back there. Hi, uh, question about, um, uh, well, first I should say, uh, during my time at USDI working for uh, Ezra, uh, the scales kind of fell from my eyes with regard to resources shared between the agency, CIA, and DOD. And from what I saw, there seemed to be an imbalance there. What do you see as the risks of the agency trying to grab establishing a new OSS-type organization, um, trying to get more resources for that, or someone coming along and saying, why don't we just give more authorities and more mission to DIA? I just remember 9-11 Commission, there was only one recommendation that uh, was not implemented, and that was the recommendation that the Department of Defense take over the CIA's paramilitary operations. And remember, Secretary Rumsfeld was like, we're doing that. And then he got the briefing. If we're going to do this, this is all the stuff you're going to have to do and laws that need to be changed. And that was the only one he caved on. Remember, I'm not making that up, am I? I think that was the only one. Uh, the point of that is uh, CIA's changed dramatically since. So is the Department of Defense. So is Special Operations. I'm all about the disruptive and transformation and I think that's why let's do a beta version. Let's take a little, let's get a little cut out of that 108 billion and let's give it a whirl, see what happens, yeah. do some lessons learned, bring somebody in there that, uh, to lead that thing, a couple people, you know, and, and that get it and see what happens. So I'll say, I mean, I, I think CIA is very good at conducting um, discrete tasks the scale that we need campaigns the, the campaign the scale that we need to defeat china is not something that can be done at cia it's, episodically it, it, is, it, yeah. it is not consistent with their culture um and, and so i think that that that's pushing this need for a new uh, formulation mark any, anything else you i'm want just to saying say? you know we, we, th we think about innovation it, it's not simply making a marginal change I, the example i always use is the uh, the ipod you know, there was, there was all kinds of MP3 players out there, but the iPod was combined with the, a store and the ability to purchase, and it became, I mean, it's hard to even remember the time before the iPod and, and, and the, the, you know, the ability to get all these apps, but that's what true innovation is about in bringing things together in, in new ways, not simply reshuffling the kind of the chain of command. And I, again, I go back to my earlier comments. We, we need to really take a hard look at this. I, I would absolutely fully support creating a new organization with you know, hybrid capabilities and bringing soft, space, cyber, intelligence into it in new and uh, I think uh, hopefully very productive and uh, important ways. All right, great. Well, oh, we've got one last question. We've, we've got a... Make it quick, please, JD. But um, if you're talking about a new service like authority, sorry, if you're talking about a new service like Construct, how will that play with something like US Cybercom? Um, I mean, we're looking at you know a no-notice requirement to restand up something like Operation Glowing Symphony for the uh, suppression of some of the videos coming out of Gaza. Um, you know, we've got similar weird intersections of capability um, between these two uh, domains. How does that play? What was so interesting when Cybercom got set, was set up, 
uh, a lot of, uh, we had interactions where they came and go and went like, SOCOM is the closest analogy to what we're trying to do. We need separate authorities, hiring authorities, all that. So it was funny. I was thinking about that the other day. So look, why don't we just take it to the next step and just include it all together? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, and, and you know, that may become necessary because if you give, if you give uh, uh, special operations a, uh, an actual service secretary, um, cyber is going to want a service secretary too, and then you know the next uh, flavor of combat uh, is going to want a service secretary. So I, th I think there is kind of some slippery slope there. But I th I'd say the cyber community. I'm not an expert. Is still balkanized, disparate, and hasn't figured out how to properly organize for the defense of America. And cyber command, a military command, having to do seemingly, I know they're military operations, that's the way they uh, describe them, but I gotta tell you, I have a bit of an issue with that, and I think we have not figured out exactly how we should be doing this yet. We, Mark, last word. Yeah, we, we talked about this a lot at, it was SOCOM and CyberCom, and who should be have dominance, and I, I, our CyberCom folks are the best tech folks in the world. They, they deal very well with ones and zeros and coding. But when it comes to knowing in the mind of our adversary and understanding them culturally and historically, you don't find that at CyberCom. You find that in SOCOM and our, our men and women who have who've lived and worked side by side with people in those cultures. And that's, it's an important part of the information operations realm that you can't, can't just be reduced to cyber. So, so anyway, yeah. I just want to thank everybody for joining us today. Um, I'll say this, both of these gentlemen, if, if there's a lot here and there's a lot more to discuss. Both of these gentlemen have, have written extensively. Chris has a book that he wrote. Uh, and Mark is a, uh, frequently comments um, uh, in newspapers with op-eds. And so I'd encourage you all to find out more there. And again, thanks everybody for joining. Thank you.